The podcast which you are about to listen to is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of two twenty-somethings, in particular Burton Cody and his obnoxious co-host Casey Mitchum. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished, to have discussed as much of the mad and macabre as they were to speak that month. For them, an idyllic spring afternoon recording became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre podcasts in the annals of American history, Bloodbath and Beyond's Texas Chainsaw Massacre Retrospective Series. This is our 26th episode, uh, since we did the intro a little different this time, and we are talking not just about Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but uh, for the rest of the month of May, we'll be discussing the other uh, films in the franchise, uh, not including the remakes, reboots, or prequels. Yeah, there's uh, there was the 2003 remake, I want to say the 2006 prequel to a, the remake. Yes. And now there's a reboot just called Texas Chainsaw 3D. It came out last summer. Which is even earlier than the beginning? I, I don't know. It's hard I, to keep up with these things. I'm, I'm losing track here. But as for our series, we'll be discussing Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, Leatherface, which is the third film in the series, and uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre The Next Generation. Yeah, they got pretty clever there, didn't they? They did. They did. I actually haven't seen Leatherface, but I've seen the other three. Okay, I haven't seen the other two, so I'm quite a big fan of the two uh, uh, Toby Hooper entries. All right, well, on with the show. So, uh, what was your first encounter with the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Um, Probably as a kid flipping through a book and reading about horror movies in middle school, and then I heard about this film. I think I asked my dad about it, which he's the last person you want to ask about with slasher movies because he absolutely despises them. So it took a few years, and I think we had like a cable service that played it uncut one night, and it was like at midnight, and I watched it with my mom, and uh, I loved it. However, I, I was a little taken aback by uh, the gore level, because the gore level is pretty low. I had it built up in my head that I was going to see geysers of carnage. Well, and that seems to be the way that our parents' generation remembers this film. Well, you know, I'll go. I'll go to my uh, to my first encounter with this movie, which was um, that a friend of my father's had recorded off of HBO the uh, animated Transformers film for me. Uh, and the very next thing that aired on HBO is Texas Chainsaw Massacre, so that was also on the tape. So. <laughs> Whenever I would watch Transformers, that would end, and then John Larroquette's creepy narration would start. And every time, the pe- the adults in the house around me would panic. And this is these are adults that would let me watch most slasher movies, even though I peeked at them from behind a pillow. Uh, but something about this movie was so forbidden, right? This and The Exorcist were like the two that my family was like, oh, you can't watch that. That's too much for you. Um, so yeah, I, I had also had this built up for me, uh, tremendously as this just, you know, inexplicably awful masterpiece of violence. Well, you know, it didn't help 
for me that my second encounter with Texas Chainsaw Massacre was at a uh, a local haunted house in a mall where they put you in a dark room and played the Larroquette narration, <laughs> and then had le- and then had Leatherface kill someone <laughs> with a chainsaw. Yeah, uh, they want. I think they wanted to get Larroquette to sound like Orson Welles. Yes, he comes pretty close to it. Larroquette, who also alleges that he was paid for this film with a single marijuana joint. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. It's, it was the 70s. Yeah, this is right after uh, Vietnam, towards the end of it. The 70s, man. It was uh, one of the most, if not the most, exciting period for American horror movies. Absolutely. I, th- I think the 80s brought about all of those really memorable franchise movies we all love and the more like Mm -hmm. effects heavy but i think the best period of american horror movies since you know classic universal was this right here yeah the 70s is the point where the slasher in particular really stretches its wings yeah directors were able to get away with a bit more violence than what they were used to and i think a lot of that had to do with uh movies like bonnie and clyde just a few years before pushing the envelope and a few of the sam peckinpah pictures you know, uh, Wild Bunch, Straw Dogs. Uh, both and, of those movies are way more violent than this one. And horror in general has always been the genre that can uh, be made very cheaply, but bring about great gains as far as box office goes. Oh yeah, this I think up until the original Halloween four years later, this was the most successful indie movie ever, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, going back to the point about our parents' generation and things, I yeah, it's been it's re- this is a movie that's really been built up in the uh, public lexicon regarding its level of violence and gore and just how awful people remember it being. The depravity of it all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I and I think in a way that might hurt it for people that don't see it at the right age. Or if you have it built up into your head that you're going to see a movie with violence like The Raid 2 that we covered last time. Sure. Yeah, you if you're expecting this, you know, charnel house film, it's not that. But I in revisiting it, you know, in my late 20s now, I find it very effective. I think it's terrific and I think it's very creepy. And a lot of it is just the world it sets you in, which is the real world. And and uh, and and looking at it in that historical context as well and understanding where it came you know, and, and what it influenced. I, I think the public at large had not seen slasher movies, really. You could say that, a lot of people say Halloween, and it's probably true, was the one that really set the standard for slashers. This predates it, and it's set in a lot of the conventions. There is a final girl, but she doesn't fight back in the same kind of way we're used to seeing final girls now in yeah. slashers. I and mean, there's some notable differences like that. Sure. Well, you you talked about the world, and I I think that's an interesting point, because I feel like Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a uniquely American horror story. Oh, yeah. Um, Uh, yeah. I mean, before, you know, it's, you know, like, people brag about how Stephen King and Salem's Lot took, you know, vampires out of gothic castles and put put them in suburbia, and what Texas Chainsaw Massacre does is, uh, it really makes us reevaluate all those dead spaces on road trips. Mm-hmm. It's that, um, it's like picking up a rock and finding a bunch of bugs underneath it. It's just something that seems so idyllic, and then there's the horror that's just right around the corner. Something familiar, you know, you've just taken that wrong turn. 
The, uh, well, and the natural anxiety of traveling in the deep south in particular. Yeah. Um, it can be a scary place if you don't know where you are. Yeah. That stock narration and the photography, which is very raw, which I love, it it almost looks like a snuff film at times. Yes. Like, I, I think this movie could be responsible for the found footage genre because mm-hmm. Cannibal Holocaust came out several years later and then Man Bites Dog and Blair Witch Project really made it a thing. And now we have the found footage genre as we know it. One of the things that really hit me, and it, I, I believe that this is more a constraint of how few takes they likely took, um, is that some of the movements are so naturalistic or they're filmed for so long. Like uh, Franklin trying to angle his wheelchair into the onto the porch. Oh, which, yeah. Which is, it takes like a, a minute and 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. And we, that's, that's all we're sticking with, but it almost makes it seem more documentary just because we're, yeah, I, we're I think that kind sticking of stuff with those moments. Yeah, and there's even the really long chase scene. Mm-hmm. I hated that. Well, I didn't hate it, but I didn't really like it when I first saw it, but I, f- I feel like it works to it. You're seeing it in real time almost. You know, they've, they've cut yes. out sort of um, the natural dramatic steps that were just so trained to expect you know um i I read gunner hansen's uh chainsaw confidential which is his uh he played leatherface and this is his autobiography which he put out of october of last year and he goes into great detail about a lot of the aspects of filming this movie and how quite a bit of it is more real than we have any reason to to think otherwise yeah i uh they did mention a couple things on an older dvd commentary it wasn't the most helpful because it was mainly the director, Toby Hooper, Hanson, and the DP just kind of telling jokes. So I didn't learn a tremendous amount. Well, uh, first of all, I mean, I one of the things that's always struck me when I watch this film, and especially this time, is that this film is one of the few that I can think of that has a smell. Yeah. I, you, I, I can just smell rotten meat reeking from the screen. And to listen to the stories of uh, Gunnar Hansen, that is exactly what it was like on set, where they were using a- they were using actual rotting meat for most of the scenes, and and they were filming in hundred degree weather yeah. in Texas in the summer. So there were several times where uh, the actors would be extremely sick between takes, uh, just trying to not just trying to choke down the stench to get through their scenes. While Hooper would make them go through, and this is a, this is an exact figure. At least one of the takes was a thirty-six hour shoot. I think it was like the dinner scene. It just yes. lasted forever. Because the actor playing Grandpa refused to do his makeup more than once. Well, it took him uh, five hours to get into it, and Grandpa also the oldest looking character in the movie. He is actually a twenty year old. I heard he was eighteen. Oh, there we go. Well. <laughs> The numbers numbers vary, but yeah. still a very young character, a very young character yeah. actor there. I, I, you know, maybe we've gone way ahead of ourselves, and I guess we're expecting, you know, the folks at home to be really familiar with this movie. But in case you are unfamiliar, this is a story of a group of twenty-somethings. I'm assuming, uh, two couples and the invalid brother, mm-hmm. as it says in the opening crawl. They go on a road trip somewhere in the middle of nowhere in Texas to find uh, Marilyn Burns' uh, grandpa's house. Yes. And on their way, they run into a family of cannibals who attack them with various 
butchery and garden tools. And that's particularly their gas powered chainsaw. Yeah. Uh, actually, I think there's more deaths by hammer. Yes. The sort of the, the meat uh, tenderizer hammer the Leatherface uses. That's so creepy. Um, you mentioned the smell. One of my favorite things about this movie, one thing that always sticks with me, is the sound design. The sound design is so perfect in this movie. Yes. Um, the, the musical score is like industrial music before industrial music existed. It's just this symphony of sort of sounds off in a distance, like a chainsaw revving up in the background or just this rumbling. It's so unnerving, especially in this, the scene where um, the, the, meat, uh, the guy gets hit in the head with a hammer first. And then yes. Leatherface slams this metal door and it goes, boom. It is Le- so perfect. Let's discuss that shot right there, because that, to me, is the iconic shot of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It is it is the first victim being clubbed in the head, twitching on the floor, and that door being slammed. Yeah. I, especially, especially because there's no close-up of Leatherface at that point. We're kept at a distance, and it's very effective. Yeah. This is the first time we've seen... Can you think of another movie where there was a masked murderer? You know, one at a time, sort of killings like this. Um, I mean that that later became a you know a big convention of the genre, but prior to this, I don't really know. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like, if you were somebody in '74 watching this, you would probably see them go, "What the hell is going on?" Well, especially because it's so sudden with the first one that you that they don't even give you time to question what you just saw. Yeah. Um, I, I wanted to share an anecdote from Gunnar Hansen about the filming of that scene, which was that Hansen had lied about his acting experience prior to this, so he was incredibly nervous about filming his scene, and in the first take actually hit the actor playing the victim in the head with the hammer, which which was a he said was foam was a fo- was foam padded at the very tip of it, but otherwise was an iron hammer. It's still the the density of a hammer hitting this dude. Yes, so he said that he almost knocked him completely out, and then and then when he drags him, he's still running on adrenaline, already feeling bad for hitting the guy, uh, who he said was a was a total pro for twitching when he hit the ground, um, Just, which they didn't expect. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> but he he said that he when he drags him, he throws him into the corner of the room right before he slams the door, and he said that he did that so hard that even though there was a small crash pad there, the producer ran. Up right after the scene was done to check to make sure he hadn't broken his neck and they weren't going to be sued. <laughs> so, oh man, which is just one of many such things. Um, and and touching on your point about the sound design, uh, there's a there's a later scene in which we see Leatherface chopping that body up uh, of the first victim. Oh, this is where he got too close to his head with uh, the saw. Yes, well, the it, it it bears mention that the chainsaw in the movie is not a prop chainsaw. It is a real chainsaw that they sometimes take the teeth off. But uh, Toby Hooper told Gunnar Hansen that he wanted this movie to be so real, so he left the teeth on the chainsaw when he's cutting the wood near the guy's head because he wanted an authentic chainsaw sound of it cutting. Uh <laughs> And Gunnar Hansen kept thinking, that's not how movies work, Toby. <laughs> Don't make me do this. Yes, this is Toby Hooper's first movie, by the way. <laughs> yeah. 
but he there, he's there were several instances where he just kept thinking people don't really make movies this way right why are we going through so much trouble why why are we doing such dangerous things it's uh it's for the sake of art man yeah absolutely absolutely but i i agree with you there there's great sound design and there's great photography here um it's actually I, beautiful at times yeah, I, I love the shot of all of the uh, Daddy Long Legs congregating in that pile. Yeah, um, and it's my favorite shot in the whole movie is where uh, it's after the first murder, and we see a girl sitting on this really beautiful scenery, mm-hmm. and she's sitting on this uh, bench. A no, swing no, it's, it's a swing. Yeah, it's a swing. And she just gets—it's a, it's a swing big enough for Leatherface, by the way. Yeah, it's—and she stands up and walks to the spooky house, but it looks so innocent at first. We know what's just happened in there, and you see a shot of her back. Well, it's—it's it's filmed from beneath her. Yeah, yeah, it's as low. Uh, the camera's on a track, and it's pointed re- at a really high angle, almost right at her butt. Yeah. but still. But I, I still like—I feel like the thing it's focusing on is her back because of what's yes. about to happen. You get this yeah. great image of this girl's back. Because before you know it, Leatherface grabs her and shoves her onto a meat hook. Yes. And because this movie is really well directed, I think, especially for a first-time film, uh, we don't actually see the hook enter into her flesh. It's yeah. You just you see Leatherface drop her from sort of far away. There's there's a very interesting cut there because they they show him about to drop her, then they cut to a like an almost subliminal shot of her back. And then they cut back to the front of her as he's dropped her on, and uh, Hanson at least believes that's why that's why that that subliminal shot is why so many people who saw it first swear they saw a woman actually be put on a meat hook. Yeah, you get that. You get a really good shot of the hook in the foreground, and it's got very shallow focus. So that's what you can really make out the the sharpness, the length of it, and then. Mm-hmm. Um, the way it's performed with the actress, Leatherface just sort of drops her, and you can see her body bloop, drop from far away. And she's struggling on it. It's yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah, they used a, a very slow film stock, and it was 16 millimeter, which gave it a, an even more amateur documentary feel because it, it captures light not as well as a 35 millimeter stock, and it just adds extra grain to it you know you're it's like you're being led in on this horrible horrible real life crime and yeah i think that's the strongest pure horror scene of the whole movie and that's coming from a movie that has great horror sequences all throughout uh but i mean back to back the 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 first and second victims um out are pretty great. Um, I, I wanted to comment on that shot too about you talking about the tracking shot of her walking in toward the house. Yeah. I, I like how the house gets much larger too. It makes it more looming and foreboding. Mm-hmm. Um, but also the the way that it's done. Um, apparently, this is something that Steven Spielberg even wanted to really know about. So he contacted the director of photography. Was and how these theories that like, oh, how did you get the swing set out of the shot? Did you have a crane or something? And the director of photography laughed at him and said, we didn't, we can't afford a crane. <laughs> so, so what they did was he said that he said they just got everybody on the crew to come over and pick up the swing set with yeah. their hands and hold it, you know, and just so the camera could slowly crawl through it without you know anyone noticing it not being there anymore. Yeah, that was almost like an Orson Welles shot. It was so yeah. perfect. 
It's it, it's a it's I think maybe one of the most beautiful shots in a slasher film. Uh, that I could think of, it's probably number one for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and like you said, I, I I didn't even think about the the uh, the back shot being a back shot to really set up what's going to happen to her. But you're right, there's some good foreshadowing there. And they do have that long scene where she falls into uh, the living room that's nothing but bones and. Uh, feathers and there's like a chicken in a cage yes it's very very unsettling um the 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 movie was almost shut down at one point because of the chicken in the cage because one of the producers got nervous about what toby hooper was going to do to a live chicken (laughs) he's a madman. but apparently they never told that producer that several chickens died during filming because of the intense heat and they had how they would just go to the chicken factory and get another one Wow, so, I, I didn't yeah. know that either. <laughs> oh man, I mean, I, I guess it's pretty common knowledge that Leatherface is loosely based on Ed Gein. Yeah, uh, loosely. Yeah, one of the writers said he was also influenced by a series of murders that happened just a year before, several months before, a guy named Dean Coral, who used two teenage boys to lure other teenage boys to his house where he would rape and murder them. Pretty horrific stuff. He killed like 30, at least 30 boys. And that at the time was considered the most horrific series of serial murders in the country. Oh yeah, also uh, the Manson family killings. The the, the Tate and LaBianca murders were just like five years before this. Well, let's be honest. I mean, this is the movie that really kicked off the based on true events trend in horror um, and sadly, if you if you see a home invasion movie that alleges to be based on true events, usually it is based on either Ed Gein, uh, for, specifically for skinning people and making furniture out of them, mm. um, or it is based on the Manson family. Because, hey, that happened somewhere to somebody, and it was the Mansons that did it. Yeah, and something so horrible because uh, the Hollywood connection with Sharon Tate, yeah. and uh, how she was killed was pretty horrific. Yes. Uh, like, that sort of thing is just burned into the American conscious. Oh, yeah, itself. absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, like I said, that all those sorts of things uh, really help to make this a uniquely American horror story. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about Franklin. <laughs> What about Franklin, Casey? Uh, so how do you feel about Franklin? Uh, Franklin, by the way, is the brother of the final girl, in his, and he's in a wheelchair, and he is a constant pessimist. He is, and at, a, at the same time, I can empathize with him because he's the guy in the wheelchair, and he's around, he's the fifth wheel. Yeah, he's not. He does, he's, he's the only one that's not in a couple. Yeah, and... <laughs> Every and he tries to like talk to everybody about something that interests him, like a slaughterhouse, and they all kind of go, oh, "Whatever, Franklin, can you please shut up now?" And he's trying to get up those steps in his wheelchair, like we mentioned. And no one helps him. No one really pays attention to him when he's going. You know, it's pretty weird that that hitchhiker we picked up put blood on our van. You think he was marking us? Uh, maybe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Just looking for my knife. Yeah. I liked Franklin, actually, well, through it all. 
Hansen shared this uh, story about Franklin, too, which shows more of Hooper's directorial style, at least at the time, um, which was that he said that Franklin, the actor playing Franklin, was an awful person to work with, and all the other actors hated him. <laughs> because, because on and off camera, he was always complaining, always whining, always, always like threatening others. Um, he would ask, he would pretend even off camera that he couldn't walk, even though he was perfectly capable of doing so. And would ask other people to do favors for him or get him things. And all just yell, you can walk, go get your own Coke. And he'd go, Oh, that's right. And he'd just get up and do it. Um, to, to the point where Hanson said that he could not wait to kill him on camera. Um, and so that he wouldn't be on the shoot anymore. And then he, he actually got a chance to meet him 20 years after the fact and said he was a very nice guy and told me that Toby Hooper told him to play Method so that we'd all hate his guts. <laughs> um, well, that's pretty convincing then. I mean, he just did it. <laughs> yeah. He's the only one in the movie that gets actually gets murdered by a chainsaw. And actually uh, is somewhat bloody as far as the, his death goes. It's pretty significant. Leatherface, we see it from behind, so the actual like penetration of the saw into his gut and chest, I'm assuming, is obscured. Yeah. But Leatherface does it for a while. Does it for a while. <laughs> yeah, I love that. You can, you can actually hear the chainsaw slow down as it enters the meat. Uh, I love those creepy shots of you know, when they're riding in the van early in the movie and you see, like, a cow at a slaughterhouse. And mm -hmm. that stuff from the way the actors react to You know, you've been on the... Everyone's been on the highway before and all of a sudden oh, you sure. drive by a slaughterhouse or a paper mill and you're like, geez, what the hell is going on, you know? Who can live this way? Who can work here? Who can... Yeah. Um, I just love the, the atmosphere that it builds up. Something that's funny to me is... They brought this up in the commentaries when they're in the van. Uh, the DP, who was 23 at the time, it was his first movie. Another child prodigy. Another child prodigy, yeah, really. He had just gotten his MFA, I think. And this is his very first movie. He didn't realize that the light outside of the van was overexposed. So when they're inside the van, it always has like this white glare to it. But they really are moving inside the van. I mean, this is the days before, you know, you have a monitor. I, like, I think every major Hollywood movie, they now have monitors. They can look and go, oh, you know, it's overexposed there or whatnot. I guess they didn't even do really like a light test. But I think it adds to the atmosphere. You know, it's one of those happy little accidents. Absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, yeah, you had so many little atmospheric quirks just found throughout the movie. Any you can remember, Casey? Oh. Well, I, I just wanted to comment on how perfectly this movie captures the desolation of small-town South uh, living, which is uh, just that setting, that house, those abandoned cars around it and everything. It's it's so perfect that it it just it gives you a bad feeling before anything even happens. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I like that all the actors are clearly from Texas. Yes. Like, they're, they're authentic. They feel like a group of character actors, <clears throat> even though they're, they're clearly amateurs, but they, they feel authentic. And I think that's so big in a movie like this. They use terms like I think a lot of Hollywood movies don't realize. Like when um, the main girl refers to her granddaddy, I never yeah. hear 
because I hear that term all the time where I'm from, South Carolina. Right. But I think I feel like mainstream Hollywood doesn't get that. Or when I was no. watching um, House of Cards, and they referred to iced tea. What the hell is iced tea? People drink sweet tea down here, you know? Right. The, yeah. the, the, it, it's just those little things. They're like there's, really there. There's those extra little pushes for authenticity that you can only get from people who understand and have lived in that area. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so let let's talk about the uh, the family. <laughs> let's talk about them indeed. Because they're the true stars of the show. I mean, the first hour is spent on these. Well, not the first hour. This movie this movie moves at a pretty brisk pace. Yeah. But uh, there's you know the first thirty forty minutes is spent on these teens. But by the time we get to this family, well, we've already met the hitchhiker played by Edwin Neal. Mm-hmm. Um, he marks the van with his blood after he slices his hand open in their van and suitably freaks everybody out. Yeah, st- uh, talking in a very schizophrenic manner and yeah. trying trying to make quick money off of Polaroid shots of them. Yeah, he's got that, uh, he's got like little pouches and stuff made out of ant- roadkill, I'm assuming. Now, he's already covered in blood when we meet him. <laughs> yeah. <He's laughs> when just, they pick him up. It's all been a day's work by now. Yeah, they just assume, oh, he works at the slaughterhouse, let's help the guy out. I, but, I mean, they they call him Dracula almost immediately, and <laughs> yeah, I think I think uh, Franklin goes. I bet he's from a family of Draculas. Is that what he says? Uh, yeah, something like that. I, Ed Ed Neal, by the way, I think is our clearest parallel to a Manson family style killer. Mm-hmm. He's he he's very much in that mold compared to the rest of the family. He's kind of a caricature of Charles Manson himself. Yeah. Just without like it's it's Manson lacking the charisma and confidence. <laughs> yeah, to to be the leader of his own little cult. Yeah, he's he's kind of a follower, and you can tell. But I, I, at least in the beginning, I don't sense that the family necessarily wants the kids to go to their house. Uh, in fact, Jim Seidel, who plays the old man, uh, that's what he's referred to, uh, who is the patriarch of the family in some sense. Mm-hmm. Um, he very much warns them off from going that direction. He's like, yeah, why don't y'all just wait up for... Because they go to his gas station. He's like, why don't yeah. y'all just wait up for the gas cup to come by and eat some barbecue and be on your ways. Yeah, his barbecue, which we know <laughs> is something more. Uh, yeah. Pre- but, I mean, Sidow is built up pretty well, at least initially, as like a guy that you don't have any reason to suspect. No, he's pretty... I don't know, he's pretty benign, you know? Same with the dude that wipes their windows. He looks yes. more like he could be one of the killers, or part of the family or group. Yeah. Um, just a, He's just an odd-looking face. Yeah, or even one of my favorite little bits in the movie is, um, by the time there's a third person Leatherface has to kill, speaking of, you know, all these people showing up, you know, when they could have gone their way, uh, Leatherface kills the third guy, and then he sort of freaks out and starts running at all the windows like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, it, in a way, it's it's almost like he's, like, why are all these teenagers coming into our house? Like, <laughs> it's like, like he's, I, you know, they're making me do this. He seems upset about it, which I really like. Yeah, he's... Uh... Um, Hanson was Hanson was allowed to characterize Leatherface in pretty much any way he liked, and he said that he spent a lot of time at a um, special education school that his sister worked at to observe the kids and mm. picked up a lot of their movements and mannerisms. He only and he, speaks in like these mumbles. 
and then he's clearly following the orders of the rest of the family. Like yeah. he, he, like he likes his job of you know of of uh, cooking and dissecting people but he doesn't but like he doesn't necessarily plan for it like it's not he's not so much a spider as just a person responding to all these teens that just keep walking into the slaughterhouse yeah he may not have a true concept of what's right and wrong you know he's deranged uh and that way that's kind of one of the hallmarks of a great movie monster is that he's a little you have some empathy for him so yeah just his look hansen's performance those prosthetic baby teeth. Oh, <laughs> you see through the mask in that one shot. He uh, did. Did you notice he wears three different masks in this movie? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that's a detail I never picked up on until this time. Okay, I did notice that. I also thought he was wearing when he's cooking dinner. I thought he was wearing fake breasts, or not uh, fake, but you know, someone else's breasts. That's possible because the mask he's wearing at that point is the mother mask, yeah. which is what they what they call it in the script. Um, and the mother mask is intended to be when uh, Leatherface's way of showing that he wants to be domestic right now. <laughs> and and he wears another mask when he comes to dinner to look like a good southern lady. <laughs> yeah, it's the one with the lipstick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> he's but, he's wearing but, like a suit. Yeah. But the mask he's most known for is his killing mask, which yeah. is just the, the standard, uh, which was actually a mold of one of the producer's faces distorted really badly. Yeah, I think I'm the biggest fan of the, the pretty lady, the dining mask. Yes. That's the one I remember the most. <clears throat> Definitely. I mean, you can just tell he's been at this for a while. Yeah, and I like the idea that he expresses himself through whatever mask he's wearing. Like, this is who I am right now. I remember... There is a deleted scene that shows him putting on the pretty lady mask. You don't see like his, you know, his uncovered face, but you see him sort of like off camera slip it on, and then he starts putting up uh, powder, I think, and lipstick. Yes. Dolling up for dinner. Oh, that may, that's that would have been a great scene, but I don't think it's necessary. No, I think it kind of. I think they said it hurt the pacing just a tad. And it it shows a little too much. Yeah. It yeah, great horror. You know, it it just shows you just enough, of... and lets your imagination fill the gaps. Okay, yeah, like you don't want to know too much about the real world because then it be uh, the world they live in. I mean, because then it'll become too familiar. It'll... Which I think is is a problem with a lot of the movement toward making prequels for these kind of things. I don't I don't want to know the story behind this family. I just I want to be in their world and just imagine all the awful things that led to them being the way they are. Yeah, or, or it's like with uh, the Hannibal Rising movie. Who cares? Yeah. You know what made Hannibal Lecter a monster? Mm-hmm. Let's just see like he is a monster, you know, and that's more interesting to me. A friend of mine who watched uh, the new Texas Chainsaw 3D, and I, I can't substantiate this other than just you know hearsay, uh, said that by the end they tried to make Leatherface seem almost heroic, and I think that's kind of silly. Uh, in fact, I think that's kind of a waste of the character. What I like about Leatherface is that there is that level of sympathy in that same Frankenstein's monster sense that he is, you know, that he's perhaps mentally innocent on his own, but acting on the orders of his family and what he thinks they expect of him. But he's still a monster. Yeah. Well, uh, it's funny you say that because I think this is kind of directly a little bit of a different take on the Frankenstein monster. I don't know if Toby Hooper uh, understood that at the time. Maybe it was subconscious, but Leatherface is wearing different people's body parts 
Um, there is an Igor type of character in The Hitchhiker, and then there's the Dr. Frankenstein, who's clearly the brains behind the operation, and sort of his mental and moral controller. Yeah. Well, you know, if we're talking about the old man, what I find interesting about the old man is that, going back to the gas station, he seems he seems conflicted, but in such an unstable way. Yeah. Where he, you know, he, like, like I said, at the very beginning, they talk about wanting to go to one of these abandoned houses, and he's like, you know, you kids shouldn't poke around abandoned houses. You know, they you can get yourself hurt. Like he's like he seems to try to lead them away, and uh, you know when when Marilyn uh, when Marilyn Burns, uh, who plays Sally, the final girl, yeah. runs back to his gas station. You know, we're we're still taking a sigh of relief there because we think that she's escaped. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in fact, there's so many scenes of him walking in and out of the gas station that if you don't know what's going to happen, you're prepared for him to get cut down by Leatherface. I love that brief moment because she runs into the gas station. He tries to calm her down. We can't hear the chainsaw sound anymore. The yeah. door is wide open, but it's nothing but black, you know. And he and he's pulling the truck around and Yeah. So we don't know what's happened, you know, has he been killed? But nope. Or or like is he gonna be killed at the last second when they open the door to the truck or but it's no, no, he is he is he is just as bad as the rest of these people. But he makes the comment uh, get it over with quickly. I don't like the killing. Yeah. Like, he, he enjoys making barbecue out of people, but he doesn't like the part where they have to kill them to do it. Uh, Although he, he also seems to really like it. <laughs> so, I was about to say, he loves it when Grandpa does it. Well, Grandpa... Okay, we, we should talk about Grandpa. For those of you who haven't seen this movie, Grandpa is in the most grotesque old-age makeup. I think he's supposed to be like 130 years old or something. Yeah, he's he's barely holding himself together, but apparently was a legendary butcher-slash-killer in his day. Like, he was clearly the guy that got all this go, you know, moving forward. Wow, he killed 50 of them in six minutes one time. He said something yeah. like that. <laughs> They're trying to get Grandpa to... Uh, to bash in uh, Marilyn Burns' head over a bucket, <laughs> and he, he and he just cannot muster the strength it's... to lift his hand enough to hit her, so he just keeps throwing the hammer at her. It reminds me of, like, Mr. Burns on The Simpsons when he tried to kill a guy with a baseball bat, and he goes, <laughs> keeps dropping it. And yes. so Smithers picks up the bat and goes, ah, Mr. Burns. I, I actually find this scene really horrifying, though, just because of the how like how giddy the rest of the family are and all the things they're shouting and well, Grandpa's limp efforts to <laughs> like impotent efforts to kill her and yeah, it's well, it's part of the. There's a lot of black humor in the movie. I mean, that scene there right is. there. Well, uh, I think this is a perfect time to talk about the abuse that Marilyn Burns suffered. Oh, film, uh, some of it real. Like a... most of it real. <laughs> <laughs> she. She is a trooper, that actress. <laughs> First of all, she actually gets her finger cut during the scene where um, Grandpa sucks on her finger to drink some of her blood uh, yeah. because they, they couldn't figure out a way to special effect the blood from her finger. No, Gunnar Hansen said there was a mechanism in a fake knife, but it wouldn't work. Okay. So he got mad because they were they had been filming like 20 hours by this point, nonstop. Yeah, this is the, this is the 36-hour shoot day. <laughs> yeah, I... I've been on a film crew, and we did an all-night shoot. That was only 18 hours. I can't imagine doubling that. Jim Seidow uh, talks about this uh, when he when he mentions filming Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, which is that there was another 26-hour shoot in that movie, and he just feels like that's just Toby Hooper's thing, and he hates him for it. He just wants to... Maybe that's part of his method for the actors, to get you crazy. 
Yeah, he. Well, okay. So not only does not only does she get her finger cut, she also uh, at one point the hammer does drop on her head. So there's actual blood in her hair at one point. Oh um, God. Another point. There was a the, the scene where she has to jump through the uh, sugar glass window. <laughs> they told they told her that she couldn't do it, but they wanted a stunt girl to do it. So the stunt girl got to jump through the window, which they said had melted severely by then and fell off in chunks on the stunt girl. Um, but she the stunt girl only had to jump through the window and fall three feet to a crash pad. They still asked Marilyn Burns to fall six feet in the in the other shot to show her falling out of the window. I think they. So, I think Hooper said no. We just dropped her off the roof anyways. Yeah, they made her <laughs> fall six feet without a pad. <laughs> That's horrible. And then the scene where she's actually the scene where she's actually tied down. Uh, they said they said they left her tied up for five to six hours. <laughs> To the point where, to the point where she actually is screaming to be let go, and that's why her eyes are so bloodshot. Oh my god! Uh, that was the, that was the last thing they filmed with her. She seems totally authentic, though. Well, because she actually is. <laughs> she is authentic. <laughs> she she has no like they they filmed all of her scenes. They've gone back for a couple reshoots, and they've tied her to this frigging chair, you know, I, and left her there for five to six hours in like, around rotting food in a hundred degree weather. Yeah, the guy that played the hitchhiker actually served in Vietnam, and yeah. he said if he ever saw Toby Hooper again, he was going to punch him in the face. He also described the situation as worse than Vietnam, <laughs> and, he, and he said, "And people were trying to kill me there." Uh, I, I think you're correct about the the method of keeping the actors crazy, though, uh, in that, according to both Hanson and Ed Neal, who played the hitchhiker, they were deliberately kept away from the rest of the cast. He said, "I would watch Toby Hooper smoking marijuana with all the kids, all the kids that played the victims, uh, between shoots, but he would tell us to stay away." <laughs> Uh, because he wanted, because he, he didn't want the actors to see us, other than the times we were deliberately trying to scare them on camera. <laughs> oh man! Is... So he said, he said by then I hated them too. <laughs> it would work. Maybe he's like a master at psychology, Toby Hooper. <laughs> he's just a master at being awful and has no conscience if it gets in the way of the shot. Well, that's I guess. the only psychology he knows: how to be a bastard. Yeah. <laughs> But hey, good results. Good results. I, I mean, I love this. I love Funhouse. I love Poltergeist. So I love Eaten Alive and Life Force. Life Force. Life Force so. Yeah. Uh, actually, uh, he made the remake of Invaders from Mars in the '80s. I saw that as a kid, and it scared the crap out of me. I watched it with my I, twin sister. We, I've never seen that one. It, it's. I, I don't know. You know, I was like ten at the time, and I thought it was one of the scariest movies I'd ever seen, even with that ridiculous of a title. But uh, willing to look, I'm willing to uh, rediscover it yeah. for the show. Absolutely. Well, I'm sure that'll be that'll be on our list of things to do once we get through this retrospective series. But uh, in the meantime, let's talk about the ending. <laughs> the I think it's a fabulous ending. I, I I do too, but I have one problem with it. What's that? Uh, the problem I have with the ending is when that truck shows up. Yeah. <laughs> Um, because it, you know, it, it hits the hitchhiker, 
but then, for no reason, the truck is unable to... The, both, both Maryland Birds and the trucker are in his truck, and they both hop out of the passenger seat when Leatherface comes running over to them, which is a total contrivance that you have to l- overlook, because there's no reason his truck wouldn't keep working, and why he would be running down the street screaming. Oh, yeah, or why he turned off the engine or something. Just yeah, didn't I, hit the I, gas. I, 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 would I would understand if Leatherface had popped a tire or something, which I, which I bet was probably something they thought about, but couldn't actually afford to pop a tire on a truck and pay for a new one. Yeah, I figured maybe the truck driver got freaked out. There was a man wearing someone's skin on his face with a chainsaw or planning to kill them both. Yeah, the um, I can overlook it. I, I can too. I can too. It's just it's a necessary contrivance to keep it going. I kind of wish that the guy had just driven away or something without Marilyn Burns. I don't know. Well, we wouldn't have gotten that awesome shot of where the truck driver throws a wrench at Leatherface's head. Leatherface falls back, and his chainsaw falls on his thigh and slices it open. That's, <laughs> uh, I think, one of the very few instances of where we actually see gore uncut in the movie. Okay, and- I, I gotta, I gotta pause real quick and talk about that scene, um, because Hanson specifically mentions this is the last scene they filmed. And Hanson thought, oh my god, they don't need me anymore. If I cut my leg off with this chainsaw, which again was a real chainsaw with a real chain for this scene, <laughs> then they're, they're not going to care because they've already got all the scenes they want. Yeah, I think um, they put just a, a metal plate on top of Hanson's leg and a piece of meat underneath yes. you know, the pants. And the saw, which you know they had to be on the money where it would cut, Mm-hmm. Cuts it open. And he had to do it himself. Yeah. <laughs> he cut the, he cut it himself. It, so. it looks real. It does. It looks great. It's... Also, with metal moving that fast against metal, it gets really hot, and it, I'm pretty sure it burned his leg. There we go. But what a trooper. Yeah. What a trooper. Um... I still think <laughs> Sally takes a cake for trooper. Oh, no. yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I, I, I do love the very end, though, of her... Her hopping into the back of that passing truck. We don't see the driver, although we do see them swerve violently to get the hell out of Leatherface's way at that one point. Yeah. Um, and and she hops into the back, you know, screaming and crying with laughter. I think that was authentic laughter because she's going, "It's over! It's over!" Yeah. <laughs> you know, they filmed this movie in sequence. Yes, for the most part. Yeah. Yes. The exception um, of just a couple of pickup shots. It was filmed beginning to end in sequence. I, I, I've also read the script. Um, I, this, uh, my parents actually gave me the, one of the shooting scripts as a present. It, you know, it wasn't like an original or anything, but it's a nice duplicate. Um, and in the shooting script, it mentions that Leatherface stamps angrily. Like, he's just frustrated. <laughs> I, I prefer the movie's version where he does that dance where he's just sort of twirling the chainsaw around in frustration, almost like a butcher ballet yeah like the horror just keeps on going i, I love it like the, so on the, you know the, the hitchhiker's gone but you still have jim Sidow and you still have leatherface out there if you take that wrong turn yeah and leatherface uh, i love you know he's spinning around and the movie just cuts to black yeah there's no fade out there's no like shot of like the camera pulling back it just cuts abruptly there- yeah, there's there's no shot that to let us know that uh, Sally got home all right. And it's just it keeps in line so perfectly with the nature of the movie, the, yeah, the, the mean, style for, of it. 
for all we know, she hopped into the back of a truck, the truck of somebody who's just as bad. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's Leatherface's cousin. I don't know. I I like to think that she got away, Me but too. still, it's it's uh you know it's it's left ambiguous. And yeah, it just it just ends on that shot of Leatherface swirling his, his chainsaw around like he could come for you mm-hmm. if you if you end up if you end up in his place and you walk into his slaughterhouse, he will uh put one between your eyes just like the cattle. Oh yeah, uh, you're just another little piece of meat. So, so what are your what are your ultimate thoughts about Texas Chainsaw? And you know, I guess I should I should you know clarify your thoughts between how you watched it before and how you watch it now. It wasn't what I expected, but now I absolutely love it. I think it's a masterpiece. Um, I remember I think you texted me and you had watched it with your girlfriend. Yes. And you said, you know what? Yeah, we we both watched it and we liked it more than we ever have. And I'm like, I was thinking the same thing. You know, it's so weird. Maybe well, it's it's weird for us because we like we both again. I I think hearing about this movie's reputation without seeing it hurts your opinion about this movie. Mm-hmm. I, I I think it's not always true in a horror, but I think if you walk into a movie like this knowing as little as possible and having as few people build it up for you as possible. It can be very effective, mm-hmm. um, but I also think it, it can be very effective if you just start you start thinking about it in a filmmaking sense, and you start thinking about it in in the the sense of what it did for horror. But when my girlfriend and I had first seen this movie, and we saw it separately, um, we we were both in our twenties. Uh, I I had never actually watched the movie from beginning to end until I was already in my early twenties. Hmm. And I I think you know initially I was like, is this it? You know I <laughs> I. I've been avoiding this movie for all this time, and this is all it was. Yeah. But it it is absolutely one of my top three favorite slasher movies. I you know I'm up there with you. Um, yeah, I I think it's I think it's just about perfect for exactly what it is. Yeah. I I think it's incredibly effective. I think it had a tremendous impact on uh, southern gothic horror fiction which is one of my favorite subgenres of me, horror. Me too, you know. I, I love the flavor it gives you. I, I love the familiarity. Yeah. Maybe th- maybe because it's Texas we should call it like uh, ketchup barbecue or something. Ketchup barbecue yeah. horror. <laughs> In South Carolina we have mustard barbecue. Yeah, it's, it's just a uh... I, I don't know. I, I think it's just a tremendously powerful film. Mm. Um, I I admire it as a triumph of low budget filmmaking. I think it's a classic American indie picture. I really. Do. I, I I really think this is the movie. Just you know, like every when when Tarantino showed up on the scene, every film student aspired to make Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. Uh, and I think for me, like I I would aspire to make a Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You know, I mm-hmm. like this 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 kind of movie. Like when I especially when I watch it now and I have ambitions to create my own things, and I see what they did with their budget, which is well below a million dollars. Yeah. Um, and I just think like, okay, it is possible to make something this this effective. Yeah. Using using just the absolute lowest budget. I mean, it, you, you might have to treat your actors like shit in the process, <laughs> but. Yeah. Um, well, I aspire to make more of a the Evil Dead, the original. <laughs> That's sure. more of my my indie horror um, uh, holy grail. But this is up there. This is up there. Yeah. Well, I I just mean in the sense that like this is just uh this is one of those sort of student films that did good you know it's yeah it shows that it can be done it's it's, it's something to aspire potent. to yeah i mean yeah you can do but i agree with you i agree with you limited budget 
uh, limited cast, the locations, mm-hmm. just the power oh, of a, a very precise artistic vision seen yep. thoroughly, you know? And it, it and it launched the career of Toby Hooper, who I think had a really impressive run for about a decade there, making these kind of movies. Yeah, I I think the when Life Force flopped, because I think it was an expensive movie for yes. the Canon Group. Um, I think that really hurt his career for a long time. It, most definitely, I, I don't I don't think it ever really recovered. No. Which is unfortunate because he was and is one of the premier American horror filmmakers. Yes, but I, I, I think there's some an argument to be made there. I, I don't, I think that a guy like Hooper or a guy like Romero or a guy like Carpenter are so effective with that small to medium budget mm-hmm. that there's no reason you should give them a big budget. Yeah, you know, there, there's directors that they work best when they got to think on their feet like this. You give them too the, many resources, they don't know what to do. Well, and you give them, you know, and, and with a small budget comes minimal uh, constraints from studios. Yeah. Um, I think the last big hit Hooper really had was Poltergeist. And a lot of had, a lot of that had to do with Spielberg's inclusion. But Spielberg wouldn't have been a fan of Hooper's had it not been for this movie. No. Uh, nobody would have been. And this is just essential horror viewing. Absolutely yeah. positively. Yeah, I, 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 you know, hardly think you could call yourself a, a fan of horror and slashers in particular without at least having seen this once, whether you hate it or you love it. But um, this time, I, I happen to fall on the side of loving it, which I, which I didn't before, but now, you know, I, I, I tepidly liked it before. Mm-hmm. But for whatever reason, watching it again at 28, I, I think this is just a really great movie, and I'm in love with it. Me too, man. Well, uh, is there? Any other final thoughts? You know, I guess we, you know, we've just given it a glowing recommendation to all horror fans. You know, if yep. you haven't seen it. Uh, again, I would recommend uh, Hansen's book Chainsaw Confidential, which I I picked up on Kindle and read, you know, in two sittings, um, and I I really enjoyed. There's a lot of there's a lot of the trivia we discussed, but there's a whole lot more in there. Uh, the man is actually a pretty impressive writer. Oh, uh, good. <laughs> It, it turns out he he after he sort of quit acting and became a uh, became an expert in Scandinavian studies. Yeah, he's Icelandic himself. Yes, and he's a he's a he's quite the scholar. But I, I think that I think that that book is a pretty vital document in um, understanding. It's it's almost the uh, the Heart of Darkness <laughs> documentary <laughs> to to Texas Chainsaw's Apocalypse Now. Oh. Um, I, I th- I think he comes off as a really good guy with just a uh, you know pretty humble person who just you know hap- happens to have made this movie. You know, when I was a kid, there was this really kind of low rent horror movie that would come on like USA on Saturday afternoons called Mosquito, and it was about a bunch of big mosquitoes that were eating people or something. <laughs> Gunnar Hansen is in it, and. I didn't know who he was at the time, but there's a scene where he gets a chainsaw and he goes, haven't used one of these in a while. Uh, <laughs> see, see, Mosquito, I think this is a good time to announce that inevitably, at some point in our future, we will be doing a retrospective of movies like Mosquito and Slugs. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm down with that. I'm down with that. And hopefully ma- the sci-fi original uh, Mansquito. I, I, I want to say Hanson was in a movie called The Scandinavian Whale Watch Massacre or something. <laughs> so I, I don't know. It's, yeah, what a career. He's, what a career. he's forever linked. 
to Leatherface. And, and I believe we say goodbye to him with this one because I don't think he plays Leatherface in any of the other entries. No, he doesn't. Uh, the next movie is a totally different actor that elicits totally different emotions. <laughs> the less said right now, the better. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I guess you know we'll just go ahead. You know, even though we've said this is cursed, we're gonna go ahead and say since we've announced a retrospective series that we will be watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 next. So if you want to follow along, find a method to watch it. It's readily available on DVD, Blu-ray, etc. Yep. I think only and, uh, only the latest remake is on Netflix. Ah, which is a damn shame. Yeah. What are you gonna do? Anyway, but there's a lot there's a lot to look forward to in this series, and uh, I am I'm actually really excited to get to our first slasher series. Me too. Me too. And uh, this is the slasher series to do it with. Yes. The original, the longest running slasher series too. Or, really? Uh, well, if you think about it, this predates Friday the Thirteenth. Oh, we're talking. Okay, we're talking chronology. Chronology, yes. We're not talking number of, number of entries. We're not talking number of entries. We're just saying okay. how long it's been. Yeah, well, I, I suppose you're right. <laughs> Almost forty years. So, wow. So uh, hopefully, hopefully, in uh, about a decade, we'll get some incredible uh, release of this film, or or maybe even this series to make it a little more readily available. Yeah. All right. All right. Well. Um, Until next time, guys, uh, I'm Casey Mitchum. And I'm Burton Cody. Stay bloody, my friends.